Holger Tau. Wissenschaft und Technik im Kopfhörer. Hello, welcome to this new episode, the first one in English for 2022. Happy New Year, I guess. <laughs> so this one is another episode about CERN, more specifically about the beam dump, which is the facility that is used to um, get the beam out of the storage ring. Um, it has to take up all the energy, which is, uh, if I remember correctly, roughly the energy well, the kinetic energy equivalent um, of a landing 747-400, so it's quite a bit of energy. Uh, anyway, so our guest, Marco Calviani, will um, talk about all of this. Um, I also got to see this thing because in September, um, our listener, uh, CERN, not technically an employee, works for Oxford, but anyway, and former guest, Philipp Windischhofer, I should say Windischhofer, he's Austrian. <laughs> um, he was our guest in episode 345 about Atlas Science. Anyway, he organized a tour and uh, I was able to join him there. And uh, we got to see all kinds of uh, interesting things at CERN. We spent two days. Um, the highlight was to get down to the accelerator tunnel and more specifically to join Marco um, to visit the beam dump so we went through this long separate tunnel and visited this huge cylinder um, that Marco will talk about this was a very interesting experience we once again had to take uh, you know dosimeters and uh, helmets and all kinds of other gear to be able to go down there we again went through these various safety slash security checkpoints with the eye scanner that I already talked about in episode 317 about Alice. So this was a really <laughs> very cool experience. So thank you very much, Philip. And of course, thank you very much, Marco. There is another thing I briefly wanted to mention. We have migrated the Omega Tau website to a current version of WordPress and also we've migrated it away from PodPress, the podcasting plugin, to Podlove. Um, lots of good consequences about that. Uh, one slight drawback is that um, the number of episodes in the feed can't be freely configured. It can be set to unlimited. Um, but the problem is if we do that, then the feed becomes bigger than what iTunes sets as the maximum of 2 megabytes. So we had to limit the number of episodes in the main feed to 100. So some of the episodes that had been in the feed so far, because I think the number was set a bit higher, um, you won't see anymore. We've always had a limit in the main feed, which is why there is a separate archive feed for the old episodes on the website. So if you don't see all the episodes in your feed, then go to the Omega Tau website, click on archive, And there is a, it's just a static XML file, right? It doesn't ever change anymore unless I update it manually. And just grab that, subscribe with that, put the URL into your podcatcher, and um, then you can also get all the other episodes. I haven't uh, registered it in iTunes because it doesn't make any sense. It never updates, so it's going to be kind of considered dead there anyway. So again, if, if you're missing 
uh, old episodes either since a few days ago when we switched to the new plugin or just generally um, go to the website there are separate archive feeds for german and english episodes and uh, yeah that's that's the place to get stuff all right that's all i had so let's get started with marco's introduction so my name is Marco, Marco Calviani. I'm a, a nuclear physicist uh, and neutron physicist by, by education. So I've been, uh, been studying physics uh, in Florence, in Italy. Then I moved to Padova, where I did my, my, my PhD. It was a topic on neutron physics. physics and, then, uh, and then I moved to CERN. And uh, I started working uh, on... Um, on the commissioning uh, of a new uh, neutron spallation target, to produce mm -hmm. neutron for an experiment. Then I remained at CERN. I worked on different topics, still involving, uh, let's say, the effects of, uh, let's say, radiation generated by, by beams, by mm -hmm. charged beams. And then I moved on to a topic, uh, I'd say, more, uh, say, hard engineering, which is related to the design construction and operation of beam intercepting devices, including targets, including dumps, and including collimators. And uh, voila, now I'm currently leading a section which is responsible for uh, for this here at CERN. And, um, and voila, that's a, bit, uh, that's a bit my experience. Uh, mm -hmm. Short so, uh, summary. Sh should we talk a little bit about the various reasons why well so i think the the label is the targets group right so it, it's about building devices into which beams or particle beams impact is, is that a fair way of saying it yeah it is correct uh, all of beam intercepting devices can be called targets in mm -hmm. the sense that they are made in order to in a way or another safely make sure that the charged beams interact safely with a block of something mm -hmm. depending on the function it has a different design and it's called uh, in a different way yeah so a target it's considered a production target when it's made exactly to produce secondary particles so you ah. start with a primary beam which could be protons could be electrons could be heavy ions um, an heavy ion beam. In this particular case, let's say talking about CERN, we mostly have proton beams, also ions, but um, yeah. let, let, let's focus on the, on, on, the, on, the, on the proton one. So in this specific case, a production target, it's a device in which your primary proton beam at different energies, depending on what you want to produce, impacts with something and produce secondary beams could be uh, neutron beams could be um, an electron beam it could be a kaon beam it could be a pion beam mm -hmm. or it could be a muon beam and it has different materials different shapes and different densities ah so the the design of the target determines what is produced when the proton beam impacts it also does that yeah. in the okay. sense that um, let's make an example if you want to have uh, a neutron beam so a very good neutron beam you tend to use heavy materials so you tend to use metals mm -hmm. with relatively high density so that you have a compact source and the number of neutrons per incident proton is relatively large mm -hmm. okay and uh, if you want for example um, a pion beam which then would generate for example a neutrino beam which several mm -hmm. labs across the world are 
are working Fermilab and 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 Jay Park in Fermilab in the US and Jay Park uh, in in Japan. They are uh, really let's say focused on neutrino beams production, and this is done by impacting. Uh, high energy proton beam with for example a, a graphite target mm-hmm. okay it's a low density material and you want this because your pions which are generated by the nuclear reactions and nuclear cascades the pions then escapes your target and this is done because it's light mm-hmm. Uh, let's simplify a bit, but it is light, so your pions escape, and then these pions, then they decay into muons and then into neutrinos, which then are foc- let's say are directed towards the experiment. Yeah, didn't wasn't there in a few years ago this case where neutrinos were supposedly faster than light detected at Gran Sasso, and those yeah, this... neutrinos were produced at CERN, right? Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. It was the CNGS yeah. uh, facility, which was operating at CERN with the SPS beam, so using um, the 450 GV oversea proton beam from the SPS. Mm-hmm. And this, we were impacting uh, a production target made out of graphite, uh, radiation-cooled, and then, uh, yes, we were generating pions. The pions were focused yeah. by magnetic horns. So they mm-hmm. are um, sort of pulsed magnets, which, by the way, they were invented at CERN here by mm-hmm. Simon van der Meer. And um, so the pions are focused because you cannot focus neutrinos because they mm-hmm. don't have yeah. charge. They don't have electric charge. So you focus the parents, let's say, mm-hmm. or the grandparents. So you focus the pions, which are decay into muons and neutrinos. Okay. So yes, they were produced also at CERN. And so it, it was it was uh, the invention of CERN to produce them in a way that they're faster than light. This was a well, joke, right? I mean, I, yeah, I know what yeah, happened. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think there was an experimental uh, glitch. Yeah, yeah. Let's call yes. it like that, which uh, gave so, a full signal. Yeah, not yeah. not a Nobel Prize for CERN. Not for a Nobel Prize. No. Okay. <laughs> no, 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 definitely <laughs> not. <laughs> okay. Uh, there, there are also kinds of targets that are used to catch those particles that escape the magnetic field that keeps the beam on track in the accelerator rings, right? Is that also part of the targets group's responsibilities? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we are responsible for all of the things that intercepts the primary proton beams in different forms they take. So we were discussing about targets and uh, another form of device, which still intercepts the beam, but it's called in a slightly different way. Yeah. And what you mentioned is the collimators. Yeah. Okay. So these are devices which are, um, we have them basically in all machines. Uh, those which are installed in the LHC are uh, the, the most complex one and the most challenging ones also in what respects their design. So they have to safely uh, let's say, absorb the beam if it's needed. They need to take the entire, let's say, um, the core of the beam, but and they are designed to also be enabled to absorb the entire core of the beam, but mm-hmm. they are usually operating in a way where they capture the halo, okay? Mm-hmm. So they capture a fraction of the circulating beam which is not uh, in the right orbit. Yeah. Let's put it like right. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We have a hundred of them uh, in the LHC of different types, placed in different areas mm-hmm. uh, of the machines, in order to intercept the beam. And uh, there are different designs, but the closest to the beam are made out of uh, carbon materials, mm-hmm. so relatively light. Uh, they are roughly one meter long. 
and they are composed by uh, jaws, so by two jaws, which moves mm-hmm. uh, in and out, so closer and farther from the beam in order to intercept more or less certain fraction of the beam that circulates. Yeah. Okay. And um, there are different designs. These are, these are called the primaries that get in very close to the beam core. And there are secondaries, uh, collimators, which are farther away and are made uh, in a way as to capture the shower generated by the beam impacting on the primary collimators. Ah, mm-hmm. And there are also tertiaries uh, mm-hmm. farther away, which protects the experiments or uh, cold devices from additional showers. So it's a cascade of components which are farther and farther from the beam uh, from the mm-hmm. beam core. Okay. And these are those elements which are the closest to the beam axis. So whatever happens, uh, they must be there to protect the most sensitive equipment that we have in the LHC, mm-hmm. which are, for example, uh, the cryodipoles, uh, so the mm-hmm. cryomagnets, and the experiment themselves. Okay, mm-hmm. We also have collimators, which are very close to the experimental ins- insertion, so Atlas, CMS, mm-hmm. ALICE, and LHCB. And these are installed in the straight section left and right of each of the experiments mm-hmm. to be able to protect uh, the experiment themselves against um, whatsoever problem uh, in the accelerator itself. They are a little bit of a plan B, right? Because if the control works well, only very few particles should uh, you know, escape the, the, the beam's correct orbit. Exactly. So the yeah. tertiary, I mean, those that protect the experiment should yes. a priori never see a lot of beam, yeah. uh, while the collimators, which are made to intercept beams, so to intercept power and fraction of the beam, these are the primaries and the secondaries collimators, which are mostly located in two points in the LHC, point three and point seven, uh, which do not have experiments there. Mm-hmm. Um, and indeed, we collect losses or we constraint losses, beam losses uh, on collimators in these two specific areas, yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Those close to the experiment, they should never see a lot of beam. Okay. Yeah. But at the same time, some of these collimators also protects the machines itself against what they, what they are called the physics debris. Mm-hmm. So, and this is especially true for Atlas and CMS. So they have you, you have quite a lot of collisions in in, in the, the experiments because mm-hmm. this is what they want. Yeah. But some of the products of this collision they still continue, let's say, in the direction ah. of the of the two beams. Okay. So there is a certain fraction of uh, production of the collisions that travels through the beam pipe instead of going through the detectors. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And this fraction needs also to be absorbed in order to protect sensitive equipment in the, in the machine. Yeah. There are collimators for that. There are also neutral absorbers, which are installed in, uh, in the straight sections uh, in order to absorb uh, this showering and also this energy because these charged and neutral particles, they still, uh, let's say, transport with them quite a lot of energy mm-hmm. okay? and average power, if, if you want. Yeah. So, because during the collision, the energy is also a power because the collision takes place more or less uh, continuously during a physics field. Yeah. So at the end, yeah. the energy is not uh, like like for a target where we, you hit a lot once and then you repeat it several times with a certain time interval. The collision are essentially continuous because it takes 
plagues with uh, with megahertz frequencies yep. so they're almost continuous so the energy which is carried by the beam it's also delivering quite a significant uh, average power on yeah. components yeah And that the third kind of uh, impacting target is the beam dump, which is what we want to talk about mainly today, right? Um, yeah, which yeah. is the thing where where the beam goes to die, a poetic way of saying it. So should we start by explaining why that's necessary? And then we can yeah. talk about all the details, of course. Yeah, that's good. So every accelerator of all the possible types, whether it's a synchrotron, whether it's a cyclotron, whether it's a Linux accelerator... All of them, they need to have a way of safely disposing the beam that is accelerated. It could be a very simple device made out of whatever material that's very compact to absorb the beam. Uh, but the higher you go in, in the kinetic energy of your beam, yeah. uh, the higher the challenge to make this component safely because your proton beam or electron beam or ion beam or whatever, when it deposits the energy Uh, that it carries with it onto a component, it uh, increases the temperature of the material with which it interacts, okay? So the higher is the kinetic energy of the beam and the smaller is the beam, the higher would be the energy density that is deposited in your component. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you want an object which is very robust to be able to absorb this energy and dissipate it safely. And you don't want this to be, for example, on a magnet, which is a functional component of your accelerator, because the energy deposition could uh, could be instantaneous or over a longer term, could uh, damage mm. indeed uh, these uh, magnets. So you tend to have, in all accelerator, you tend to have an object, which is, um, I would say, is a disposable one that has the only function of safely take this energy, mm -hmm. essentially. And it needs to be made or constructed uh, with materials which are sufficiently robust as to be able to resist multiple impacts over a, a long time okay yeah, right and uh, we also need to take into account that especially in a hadron collider at high energies like the one that we have at CERN whether it's the proton synchrotron or it's the booster or it's the SPS or is the LHC uh, these components usually becomes relatively highly radioactive mm -hmm. and as for example for targets and for collimators it's the same thing uh, but the higher is the number of protons or charged particles that you dump on your component the higher would be the residual dose rate of these components so they usually are located in areas which are kind of mm -hmm. separated from the main area of your accelerator uh, which you want it to remain relatively um, Uh, at a low level of radioactivation yeah. is to be able to intervene for maintenance purposes uh, in a relatively quickly way while the dumps are usually placed in areas uh, which in which the dumps are alone mm. <laughs> or sufficiently protected yeah. okay so staying with the LHC dump for a moment um, roughly how big how heavy how do we have I mean We've been there, right? We had this yeah. great tour in, I think, September. Uh, thanks yeah. again for that. Um, how big is this thing? How do I have to imagine that visually? Yeah, so the LHC beam dump are actually installed uh, in a dedicated caverns. There are two of them because there are two circulating beams, mm -hmm. uh, clockwise and counterclockwise. So there are, there are two caverns. Um, 
which are uh, separated from the main ring of the LHC by uh, a transfer tunnel of r- roughly 700 meters long. And the dump itself, it's uh, roughly nine meters long uh, with a diameter of around uh, 700 millimeters, so 70 centimeter diameter, roughly nine meters length. And uh, it is composed essentially by, by graphite of different density, which it has the function indeed of absorbing safely um, the LHC beam. And all this graphite uh, is contained uh, inside uh, a stainless steel vessel mm-hmm. and now is separated by, by a couple of, say, by two windows made out of titanium alloy uh, that keeps the graphite in place and also under um, a nitrogen gas atmosphere. So inside the dump, you have graphite and you have uh, an inert gas mm-hmm. to protect graphite against uh, oxidation. Okay? Because when the beam impacts onto the graphite, as I said before, this deposits energy and the energy then generates heat and the heat uh, essentially uh, manifests itself in an increase of temperature in the graphite. And um, let's say that the graphite starting from this year, from 2022, uh, with the nominal beams that are expected uh, for what we call LHC run three, the graphite will reach uh, 1,500 degrees. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You don't want to have graphite exposed to air at 1,500 degrees yes. because it, it can massively oxidize. Burn. Well, this is an interesting topic <laughs> okay. because indeed the graphite in this specific case of the LHC beam dump will not catch fire, okay. uh, but it will oxidize. That means yeah. that the carbon contained in the graphite, uh, if it comes in contact with oxygen at relatively high temperature, you could form CO2. And of course, CO2 is a gas, mm. so it basically disappears. Mm-hmm. So it, uh, effectively, what it would mean is that if we would have had the dump in air, essentially mm-hmm. at this high temperature, over time, we will have a reduction of mass, essentially. So instead of having six tons of graphite per dump, like what we have now, uh, over time, this mass could reduce the significantly. And of okay. course, this we don't want, because if the graphite disappears, or, I mean, reduce its mass. Yeah. Also, the effectiveness of the dump itself in catching yeah. the LHC beam will be reduced uh, considerably. Yeah. So, you said that um, it heats up to 1,500 degrees. Is that the whole six tons, or is it a, a, a local heating? And what about mechanical stress and expansion? I imagine that's all. Yeah, this is an inter- <laughs> it's a very interesting subject. So, essentially, the beam, in fact, uh, before reaching the dump, uh, it takes a sort of uh, diluted pattern. So mm-hmm. we will not be able to absorb the entire LHC beam uh, of 70 V at uh, 2,800 bunches. We will not be able to absorb it in a single position because yeah, it's like- we basically... Yeah, it's few millimeter thick, yeah. uh, the position of the dump. Uh, yeah. If we would not have had the dilution, mm-hmm. we would basically um, just sublimate the graphite. Okay, <laughs> So after one single dump, there will be no core anymore because mm-hmm. the graphite will be completely sublimated. Okay, So there have been studies when the dump was first uh, built uh, 15 years ago. They focused in addressing uh, uh, this matter and, in fact, there is a lot of redundancy in the beam dumping system 
exactly to try to reduce as much as possible uh, this kind of events where the beam is not diluted. So effectively, the beam arrives onto a dump with a sort of a E shape mm-hmm. uh, because it is diluted upstream by a series of magnets, by a series of uh, fast kickers, which uh, paints essentially the beam mm-hmm. onto the dump in order to dilute as much as possible the energy deposited uh, onto the dump or the energy density deposited yeah. by the beam on, onto the dump. So in fact, this uh, 1,500 degrees is reached essentially in the center of the dump, in the core, uh, in the low-density sec- sec- sector. Because I said before, the dump is made out of graphite, but in fact, we have uh, roughly 70 centimeter of high-density graphite made out of uh, a density of 1.75 gram per cubic centimeter. Then after that, we have three meter and a half of low-density graphite, mm-hmm. which is graphite with a density of around 1.1, 1.2 gram per cubic centimeter. And then we have another three meters and a half of high-density graphite, the same that we had at the very beginning. Mm-hmm. Because, in fact, the proton beam will, um, let's say, reach the highest energy density or the energy lost, let's say, exactly roughly in the middle of the dump, uh, in the middle of this three and a half uh, mm-hmm. uh, meter long section. Um, so we want to reduce there the density as much as possible in order to reduce the peak temperature as much as possible, because amongst the different parameter, the temperature is dependent also on the, uh, let's say, density of the absorbing material. So the lower is the density, the lower is the, the, is the temperature. So we reach this 1,500 degrees in the middle of the dump, longitudinally speaking, mm-hmm. and uh, along this uh, E-shape mm-hmm. uh, in which the beam is uh, transversally painted uh, onto the dump. Mm-hmm. Okay. There is an area which is slightly hotter than the other, but let's say, roughly speaking, uh, the peak is reached more or less uh, in the middle of the dump and uh, uh, where the sh- beam is mm. in this E-shape. And and would this lead to an expansion of the graphite? And does this have to be contained or is the graphite itself, what's the word, non-heat expandable enough? Or Well, so at the end, uh, this is the definition of the source of mechanical stress yeah. in beam intercepting device because your beam impinges on the target material. This heats up, but it's not heating up uniformly. So mm-hmm. if you imagine that there is a cylinder, if you heat the center of the cylinder, you're going to expand only the central part of your cylinder while the neighboring area, which is not directly impacted by the beam, will stay cold. Mm -hmm. So essentially, the center of your cylinder wants to expand, while the external part uh, will not allow that, okay? Mm -hmm. So this gradient uh, of of energy uh, and temperature is actually a source of mechanical stress, uh, which is generally true for all beam intercepting device. It is also true in the case of of the LHC beam dump, in case of the graphite. Um, uh, so this is certainly one of the uh, important aspects that we take into account for the design uh, of the dump. Uh, there is not much that we can do around that. That's also why graphite is chosen with respect to other materials, mm-hmm. because uh, graphite is a relatively low coefficient of thermal expansion. That's one, so one of the reasons why we use graphite. Uh, for we, I mean, where high energy labs use graphite yeah. as beam intercepting device, because it's quite good at what it has to do. In the specific case of uh, of the LHC beam dump, 
the problem is uh, not necessarily and not only on the graphite at the first uh, at the first degree because we also have seen some challenges there but one of the challenges that we recently what we realized in the last uh, two three years um, is actually the fact that the B, proton beam impacting onto the graphite, as also for all the other beam intercepting devices, generate a shower of particles. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, a, it's a shower composed by hadrons. It's also composed by an electromagnetic showers, say essentially gammas and electrons. Um, and um, we have a significant amount of energy which is deposited into the stainless steel shell that Mm-hmm. contains the graphite okay mm-hmm. this is a relatively small amount of energy with respect to the total impinging beam uh it's a few percent but this few percent is uh, definitely enough to generate uh, a significant amount of thermal stress into the external vessel and therefore um, an overall deformation and movement of the entire uh, dump itself okay so so the the whole the whole dump has moved over the years of use. Yes, effectively, this uh, was uh, an interesting discovery. This was not uh, this was not on purpose, clearly. Yeah. So prior to last year, basically, uh, so from the beginning of the LHC until last year, the dump was physically connected to the uh, vacuum line of the LHC. Mm-hmm. Okay, so as I said before, there is this 700 meters long transfer line that. Uh, transports the beam from the LHC tunnel into the dedicated cavern for the dump uh, for both. And then at the end of this transfer line, there is a a window that separates the uh, ultra high vacuum of the LHC from the nitrogen atmosphere of the dump. And then this window was continuing with another connection tube, let's say, that was linking the LHC transfer line to the dump itself. And this last part was all filled with nitrogen. Mm -hmm. But during round two, so from uh, basically 2014 until 2018, we noticed um, that at the same time that LHC was ramping up uh, in uh, in intensity, basically, uh, we also noticed uh, uh, that we were ramping up a number of failures in the dump block itself, which consisted basically in an increased amount of nitrogen leaks mm-hmm. from the sector itself. Mm-hmm. So we didn't understood really at the beginning the origin of that. Of course, we we managed to fix the problems in order to continue operating. This is clearly the priority. But at the same time, we started um, a calculation effort mm-hmm. to try to understand the origin of these leaks because clearly we could not afford uh, this going on like that. We needed to understand the origin of that to try to fix it. And indeed, a couple of years ago, we we understood why that was happening, and this was was happening actually. And indeed, this was due to uh, this, um, let's say, expansion and contraction of the dump, uh, which also led to movement of the dump. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and then this physical connection to the beam line got kind of leaky. Exactly. So this was, I mean, all the nitrogen leaks were there within this yeah. uh, in this connection tube, but. We found really in 2018, the reason why we decided to make major modifications during the last shutdown, it is because we found uh, one of the last leaks was really at the window itself. Mm-hmm. And why we can cope with nitrogen leaks, we were afraid that 
the leak would have appeared on the upstream side of this window, basically in the, mm-hmm. in the ultra high vacuum sector yeah. of the machine. And we would not have been able to fix the problem yeah. if that would have, have appeared in the, in the ultra high vacuum sector. Yeah. So we decided to remove completely this connection and physically separate the, the dump block from the, um, from the tunnel itself, yeah. I mean, from the tube uh, yeah. of the LHC. I'll get back to that in, in a few moments, um, yeah. but a few more questions before I do it. So have you ever, like, I don't know, filmed the, the impact of the beam into the dump? Is it, is it, is it is a bang? Is, it, is there a flash? Is it, like, physically interesting, or is it...? Yeah, <laughs> so indeed, uh, we didn't feel in itself. However, during the course of the years, basically 2007... We had a student, we put them there, and he told us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that would have been good, but <laughs> no, we cannot do that. <laughs> so, so, no, in, in fact, so we, we didn't put a camera there, but we put a series of, let's say, semi-passive uh, instrumentation in the area during 2017 and 2018 that were helping us in our simulation efforts. So of mm-hmm. course, we do our simulation efforts to try to understand what the problem is, but as a good uh, experimentalist, I want to see if the if what we are simulating is corresponding to reality. So we put, uh, uh, in collaboration with, with groups here at CERN responsible for, uh, for measurements, we put um, uh, passive interferometers in mm-hmm. the area, and we also put uh, an optical fiber microphone. So indeed, on one side, we were able to clearly observe and uh, measure the vibrations of the dump, both the fast one, mm-hmm. uh, which occurs during uh, the dumping itself, as well as the slow ones, which are generated by the heat mm-hmm. released by the beam from the graphite to the uh, sideboard, let's say. Um, so we were able to see that with, uh, with, with passive interferometers. And we were also able to record the, the uh, effect of the beam with the microphone. So mm-hmm. indeed, we, we do have uh, some, uh, we don't have a video, but we have a sound <laughs> of the beam uh, that impacts onto the dump. Okay. So, and is it is it loud or is it? It is extremely loud. I, I may, maybe I can try, I can try. <laughs> Just curious. Maybe I'll send you later. Huh? Because I mean, what are the energies we're talking about? How much energy is there in a beam when it impacts this this dump? Yeah, so so indeed we are talking about hundreds of megajoule. Okay, mm-hmm. so it's a it's a really an enormous amount of energy, which gets absorbed into this dump in a relatively short time. So talking about let's say three hundred megajoule over the extraction time, which is eighty six microseconds. Mm-hmm. So the peak power is really an enormous amount of energy, um, which uh, which gets into the dump. Okay, this is this is really the peculiar characteristics yeah. of the LHC beam dumps because the other beam dumps that we have at CERN, they are characterized by usually relatively high energy, kinetic energy dumped onto the device, but they also need to serve very regularly. So at the end, uh, we are mainly worried for other dumps, or mainly worried by the need of remove uh, power, so remove heat mm-hmm. from 
our absorbers. Mm-hmm. We'll talk, maybe we'll talk later about the SPS bin dump. Yep. This is really specific. There's a lot of power to dissipate there. In the case of the LHC, we do have lots of energy that gets dissipated in an extremely short time, but the beam gets dumped every few hours. Okay, it mm-hmm. depends on the operational scenarios. But yep. So the average power in itself is not extremely high, but the peak power is. Yeah. So so this is yeah. what, in the specific case of the LHC, generates this problem. And so, in fact... Yeah. In other words, you don't have a cooling problem that much because between subsequent dumps, there is enough time for the thing to cool down. But when it impacts, then you have these mechanical issues you talked about before because of the high peak power. Yeah. Let's say that up to now, we didn't have <laughs> okay. any major problems of heat dissipation mm-hmm. because okay what i said it's 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 true i mean in other cases uh, in other dumps uh, at cern but also elsewhere uh, there is a high power talking about say hundreds of kilowatts that needs to be dissipated in in the case of the let's see dump uh, we're talking about maybe some uh, maybe kilowatts or tens of kilowatts which is not an enormous amount in itself yeah. if you average over few hours. Huh? Yeah, yeah. Um, but at the end, it's it has not been critical up to a certain degree up to now, so up to this long shutdown, but they, it will start to be in the future okay. because the, the total energy will increase. So in run three, we will likely go to 540 megajoule per dump. But in the high luminosity LHC upgrade, which is foreseen to take place uh, from 2027 onwards, we are going to go to 680 megajoule. So we're going to double the energy that we have right now. And and that is because the the, the magic number that everybody talks about, the 7 TeV per proton, that is the same. That doesn't change. The uh, the accelerating capacity of the LHC won't change, but the amount of particles, the intensity of the beam, that will become higher, and therefore the total amount of energy circulating in the beam, which has to be dumped, that will increase, right? Exactly, exactly. So here, the, the magic number, as you are talking, is, is really what is called the bunch intensity. So how many yeah. protons are stored in every... Let's say pockets Packet, of, yeah, yeah. Mm. Of, uh, of of beam that are circulating in the LHC. So we are have. I mean, during the no, I mean, when the machine will be filled, you're going to be uh, 2,800 uh, bunches, uh, and each of them will contain uh, several 10 to the 11 protons. Yeah. Okay. So up to now, we have been have we've been running with 1.2 10 to the 11 protons per bunch. During round three, this number hopefully will reach 1.8, 10 to the 11. But during high luminosity, this will reach 2.2, 10 yeah. to the 11. Yeah. So, so this clearly will determine that the circulating beam will have much more uh, kinetic energy. Yeah. And the reason why this is desirable from the LHC perspective is, of course, that the probability of two protons in a bunch crossing colliding is higher when there are more protons per Bunch. And, and that's the yeah. idea, to get to get more activity, more events, while each of the events has the same energy, the same TV, same TV. Exactly. So right. this is the, what is called the luminosity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. So yeah. it's the number of interaction per unit time. Right. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Last question before we uh, talk about kicker magnets a little bit. So when and why is the beam dumped? I, I understand that uh, the typical cycle is you, you fill the LHC, you inject from you know previous acceleration stages, and then at some point when you have enough, then you start exa- uh, uh, experimenting where you collide protons away, so the beam gets 
reduced in overall luminosity, I guess, or intensity. Right. And at some point you then dump because it's no longer worth to do the science, right? So that's one use case. That would be the the best scenario for beam dumping because mm -hmm. it means that yeah. the beam operation team can really dispose the beam when the experiments, uh, let's say, would run better with another uh, physics fresh, field, okay? Yeah, when yeah, they, yeah. yeah, with a fresh injection, let's yeah, put it like that. Yeah, yeah. But sometimes the dump needs to activate, so the dumping system in general, not only the blocks that yeah. we're talking about, but even the, the kicker systems that dispose the beam out from the machine, uh, it, it needs to operate in all possible different scenarios. So, for example, if you have uh, an abnormal uh, uh, loss uh, somewhere in the machine, that is monitored by or, or seen by the beam loss monitoring system, if the losses are above a certain threshold, mm. then the system will activate to dispose the beam to better understand where the source of high uh, loss comes from. So there is a different, uh, I mean, quite a lot of different scenarios that could generate uh, a beam dump, but uh, in most of the time it's either, I mean, either you dispose when you want to or uh, for any other potential problems that may appear uh, in the machine and that is seen by all the different instrumentation. Yeah. Or, for example, in many cases, it is also uh, dumped at injection. So, mm -hmm. for example, especially at the very beginning when we will be restarting, for example, this year, uh, before we can really go into physics mode, there will be many cases in which the LHC will get beam from SPS, but um, the beam will not be ramp up from 400 GV to 7 or 6.8 TV, which is the energy yeah. that is uh, uh, foreseen for, uh, for, for round three. You will not get up to the top of the energy, but at some point you will stop in the ramp and you will not be able to accelerate anymore and you would want to dump the beam uh, mm -hmm. at that point. So so, that's basically because people want to slowly ramp up the overall system uh, is it also magnet, yeah, magnet also, training? Well, no, well, the magnet training takes place uh, also without beam. This oh, is I what right, the, right. is being carried on. Uh, yeah. I mean, at the end of the shutdown, yeah. before we start with beam, right, 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 the right. magnets are ramped uh, to train them. Yes. Yeah. So you usually takes place uh, without the beam. Yeah, it's yeah, not right. needed for the training of the, yeah. of, of, of the magnet. Yeah. So, okay, yeah. so in, in fact, the beam needs, so the beam dumping system needs to be there in all possible scenario, it needs to be an extremely reliable system yeah. because if that fails, then you can damage the machine yeah. quite seriously. Yeah. So that's why the dumping system contains not only the dump itself, but also contains other uh, protecting devices, let's call it beam uh, intercepting devices, yeah. which uh, are also protecting other sensitive equipment uh, in the machine. Yeah. Okay, so let's talk a bit about how the beam gets from its kind of steady state orbiting into the beam dump. So you said before that there is this 700 meter long connecting tunnel. I guess it's more or less um, like tangentially to the circular um, ring at, at, at a particular point, right? So, so but you, in any case, you have to somehow change the beam's path from following the circular yeah. orbit to somehow taking a right turn a little bit to or left yeah. to, to follow along this horizontal tunnel. And that's done with kickers, right? Yes, this is done uh, in one specific point of the LHC, which is, uh, which is point six, where the dumps are located. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, in fact, uh, 
you have a, a mirror system again for uh, for beam one and beam two, yeah. and uh, you first have a, a series of kicker magnets, which uh, basically kicks the beam horizontally away from the nominal orbit, mm-hmm. and then you have a series of uh, another sets of magnets, which is called septa, which then deflects the beam vertically. And, and the beam only goes through these vertical deflectors once it's horizontally deflected, I guess. Exactly. Yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. Exactly. You first have the yeah. kickers that deflects horizontally, and then you have the other one, the septa that deflects it vertically to put it in a different uh, beam vacuum tube with respect mm-hmm. to the circulating beam, um, which then really transports towards uh, the dump. Then after that, you have, uh, um, after the septa, uh, the septum magnet, the septa, uh, yeah. you have uh, the dilution kickers, right. which are these extra magnets, which uh, provides this uh, E-shape to the beam, uh, again, to reduce the risk of uh, damaged dump, essentially. And then you have this very long uh, drift space, yeah. es- es- essentially, uh, which needs to be contained in a vacuum chamber which is slowly increased in size yeah. because your beam will drift and yeah. their fall will increase in size yeah. and then it reaches at the end uh, so from a small tube of uh, 10 centimeter wide yeah. it becomes uh, a 70 centimeter diameter beam tube yeah because yeah. again the beam gets larger and larger yeah yeah okay so these kicker magnets so beam is orbiting now we decide to dump so we have to now switch on, ramp up, energize these kicker magnets. That has to be really fast, right? Because you, yeah. you don't want, I mean, I guess you want it to be almost like a, like a zero one, like a digital switch, not a slowly change in direction because then the beam would be directed, I don't know where. Very true. And this is the reason why we use the fast kicker magnets with a relatively, last, uh, relatively fast uh, rise time, which is a few microseconds. Mm-hmm which, well, it's the time really that needs to go from zero to one. And, and of course, this rise time should not occur when the beam is circulating, okay? So that's right. the reason why in the field pattern of the LHC, there is a specific area, which is called abort gap, which is empty from proton beam. There, is, there are no protons in there. And okay. it's really a gap, let's say a temporal gap, yeah, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a physical gap which yeah. then transforms into because a time. Because of the rotation speed, it becomes a time, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And this is really the time where uh, that must be synchronized very, very well because it's the time that the kicker have to go from zero to one Okay. to make sure that the beam then uh, at the next turn is dumped away and kicked away from the main orbit uh, of the machine. Okay. So so people should have heard this in previous episodes about the LHC, but it's the, the beam is not actually a beam. It's not a continuous beam. It's a bunch of dedicated, you said 2,800 before, yeah. packets that are almost like, yeah, pockets. You use the word pockets. And and you're exactly. saying that they're not, they're mostly evenly spaced, but there is one gap where there is a bigger spacing and that if you consider the speed or the rotation frequency or orbiting frequency, becomes these three microseconds within which you can ramp up the, the magnet. Indeed. And it must be and it must be there. And the synchronization is very important yes. because otherwise you could have what's called an asynchronous beam dump, yeah. which is an event which uh, in the design of, of different components is a sort of um, worst case scenarios yeah. because it would happen when... Uh, 
make it very simply, when the, the kicker would rise, would rise, rise up, but the beam is circulating. Yeah. So you would basically spray yeah, yeah. your beam horizontally yeah. uh, into the aperture of the machine. And, uh, and this could hit different components. And uh, of course, there are protection devices yeah, yeah. Uh, that protects sensitive equipment against uh, this. Okay, so you have, um, uh, let's say, collimators-like components, absorbers, very close to the beam dumping systems, which are able to protect uh, the different components that exist in, in the area. But uh, asynchronous beam dump is a failure, it's a failure case that is also taken into account for the design of the collimators, mm -hmm. because the collimators need to protect, for example, the experiments against uh, this type of event. You may have, uh, let's say, uh, circulating, uh, let's say, part, uh, proton beam, primary pro proton beam, which is off the nominal orbit, uh, and the collimator close to the experimental insertion need to be able to capture these particles because you don't want to, them yeah. to hit uh, the very sensitive detectors uh, yeah. of Atlas, CMS, LHCV, or ALICE. Yeah. I imagine that the reason why you first have this um, horizontal and then the vertical kicker is maybe also related to this, right? Because um, the amount of deflection for the beam obviously depends on the strength of the magnetic field. And I imagine that if you have a higher field, it takes longer to ramp up. So is my understanding correct that you use the horizontal small kicker? That's the one that ramps up. But, yeah. and, and then you go through permanent or, or at least slower ramping magnets for the bigger deflection. Is that the idea? Yeah, I mean, of, of course, you want to have the smallest possible uh, yeah. uh, uh, kick with a high with a high field magnet. Clearly, yeah. yes, yeah, yeah, and 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 this is true for all the other machines. Eh? This is not only in the case of the LHC. You have uh, kicker and septa also for the extraction or injections from uh, right. from the other machines. Yeah, because they, the beams circle there, and then when when they're accelerated enough, you decide now you want to redirect them into the transfer tunnel to the to the TLHC. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's okay. true. I mean, it's true from the from the yeah, yeah. proton synchrotron booster to the proton synchrotron, yeah. from the PS to the SPS and then from the SPS to the yeah. LHC and yeah, then yeah. from the LS from the LHC to the dump. Yeah. And then once the kickers have done their work, the beam is the, the, the beam is basically emptied in one in one round in what was it was yes. 60 86 microseconds kind in of in one turn. Yeah. yeah okay. And then, and, and then there is a certain delay from, uh, from the moment you dump to the next injection. You really yeah. clearly need to make sure that all the system works uh, again properly before injecting again uh, into the machine. Uh, but that's not seconds, right? That's, that's a long no, time. No, it could take maybe one hour. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm sure there are certain self-tests going on as well and, and kind of recharging yeah. of, I don't know, all kinds of devices. Yeah, okay, all right. And if the kickers fail, if you can't, dump the beam. I'm sure there's a failure mode you're looking at, right? So what then? Well, there are several... Uh, well, this is an interesting subject. Uh, I'm probably not the best place to comment on that, but I, okay. I'm aware that there are uh, several um, machine development which have been uh, executed over the last few years, which looks at the possibility of uh, dumping the beam without a functioning dumping system mm -hmm. so you basically lose the beam uh, over time mm -hmm. uh, let it decay basically and let it yeah there are several systems associated with that but uh, but usually the beam dumping system has uh, sufficient uh, redundancy yeah. as to be able to dump in any case uh, yeah. uh, the, the beam uh, out of the lhc yeah so especially the extraction part uh, 
we cannot have a redundancy on the beam dump block yeah. because you cannot have two of them. But, uh, but that's a passive it. system that kind of really fail. I mean, over time it might be destroyed, but but like it's not an immediate failure. Exactly. Mode. Yeah. No, it, it's true. It's true. It's true. Yeah. While for the active part, exactly. there is a, quite a lot of redundancy there. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 Okay. So you mentioned earlier that during the current shutdown, you um, rebuilt or enhanced the, the beam dump. Um, and uh, maybe we can talk a bit about why you did that and what you did. And one thing you already mentioned is this gap between the entry window of the graphite dump and the exit window of the vacuum transfer tube. It's a couple of meters, yeah. I guess, right? If I remember well, correctly. Well, it's, te it's ten, 10 meters. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so as I was mentioning before, so the dump up to last year, basically, so up to the end of LHC run two, it was physically connected to the window that separates the ultra high vacuum from the nitrogen. And uh, in order to protect the ultra high vacuum part during run three onwards, we wanted to physically separate the dump from there. So we removed the connection line. So essentially the beam travels, will travel in air from the ultra high vacuum sector to the dump itself. We'll travel in air for around 10 meters. And then the dump itself, now it's contained uh, in the in two, uh, so the, the absorbing part of the dump is contained within two titanium windows, titanium grade five windows, which are uh, extremely robust. And the dump itself is not anymore just placed by gravity on two uh, supporting uh, uh, frames, yeah. but are actually suspended onto two uh, steel ropes. So that it can move. That it can move, yes. So this is uh, what I said before about the movement of the dump. It's yeah. something that we cannot solve, okay? Because yeah. this is physics, yeah. okay? So the energy deposited into the vessel creates uh, essentially... Um, an, an imp and a moment, an impulse, right? It, it well, yeah, it's not really a moment, but it, essentially you have uh, an inhomogeneous or an asymmetric deposition of energy mm -hmm. in your stainless steel vessel. So you deposit more energy into the middle sector of the stainless steel and less at the two extremities. This basically generates a longitudinal movement of, mm -hmm. the, of the dump. So it's like a, an harmonic. Mm -hmm. it, it heats up in the middle and uh, basically it starts to expand longitudinally, okay? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, and it moves that with a certain frequency of around 200 Hertz. So this is what we call the source of this uh, fast movement, uh, which makes the dump really move uh, uh, almost by, by one centimeter. So the two extremities of the dump moves each of them by one centimeter, which is huge mm -hmm. and an, an enormous amount of movement for for that kind of device we're talking here about uh, acceleration ups up to 200 g's <laughs> okay which of course if you multiply that by the mass of of our system uh -huh. pro provides an enormous amount of force that that we need to cope so we couldn't constrain the dump because this was one of the options that we investigated so basically mm -hmm. physically constrain the dump in place but the force are so high that we would have destroyed any constraints that we would have put on the dump. Okay. So our choice, given that we cannot, let's say, remove the physical origin of the movement, is to try to mitigate the effects of the movement. Mm -hmm. So we needed to cope with this movement, at least with the current design, we cannot change that. And so we installed the dump on these ropes that will allow to um, uh, absorb, let's say, this vibration. This is for the for the fast part. And the second effect, as I was mentioning before, is that this amount of uh, 
energy, these hundreds of megajoules, these generate uh, an instantaneous temperature increase in the graphite, as we said before. But this energy, most of it remains in the graphite. Okay, So the graphite slowly dissipate the heat from the graphite to the stainless steel vessel. Mm -hmm. So this thing heats up and it heats up over hours. Okay, so it's not something that occurs within oh. minutes, it occurs within hours. After the dump event. It... After the dump event. Okay, wow. Mm -hmm. It takes uh, one hour, one hour and a, and a half before the graphite can effectively, let's say, release the heat into okay. the external vessel, which also will heat up at its uh, respect, basically. Yeah. Yeah. And this will also increase the size of your dump because you will have a mm -hmm. thermal expansion mm -hmm. of your assembly so it will heat up and then it will uh, mm -hmm. shrink back at the original size within 10, 12 hours. Mm -hmm. And this also because the, um, we're talking before about the cooling system. Effectively, the dump has a cooling system. It has uh, some uh, blow of uh, air from the bottom up to the dump. Mm -hmm. uh, but this is clearly not sufficient in order to efficiently dissipate the heat. Also because stainless steel, it's a very bad thermal conductor in itself. If we would have used aluminum, mm -hmm. which had other problems, yeah. it would have been much more effective in dissipating the heat, while stainless steel, which is a very bad thermal conductance, it, it is clearly not the best material for this yeah. in the respect of the yeah, thermal yeah, yeah. part. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so in fact, these ropes, coming back to the original topic, the, this rope would be able to absorb, let's say, uh, or compensate the expansion of, of the vessel, of the external vessel, and would allow the vessel itself, so the dump, to come back to the original position mm -hmm. after it cooled down. Mm -hmm. so, so this is a bit the logic of these modifications, which are pretty important. Um, and in addition to that, we profited and uh, installed uh, quite a lot of uh, instrumentation onto the dump mm -hmm. to really be able to cross-check and benchmark our simulation package in order to be ready for the high luminosity LHC dump because the modifications that we have done are compatible with the functional specifications, which brings us to the end of run three. So basically ah, yeah. at the end of 2024. Mm -hmm. But uh, the current dump is not capable uh, of sustaining the, the beam parameters which are expected uh, when high luminosity LHC will be in full swing. So, so the modifications we have done now are very important for us also to understand uh, mm -hmm. uh, how to move forward with the design of the, of the high luminosity so, LHC. So in the next couple of years, you will uh, basically monitor and operate the current dump, um, improve the simulations, and then use those to define the next level of dumping capacity. Exactly. And mm -hmm. this is also going to be... Um, corroborated with some extra activities that we are executing. One of them is uh, basically a spin-off or a consequence of the activities that we did uh, during this shutdown. Because uh, when we were upgrading uh, the dumps that we have installed uh, last year, we profited to execute uh, a sort of uh, an endoscopy, uh, a parasitic endoscopy <laughs> uh -huh. of the operational dump. So the old radioactive dump that we have removed, uh, let's say, from service. Yeah. And uh, we noticed there that uh, 
some of the components of the dumps inside were cracked, so were hi highly damaged. So the and components inside, these are these multiple layers of uh, different density collision exactly. materials, right? Okay, Exactly. Mm -hmm. So yeah. some of the components inside were found uh, damaged. We were not initially expect that. Mm -hmm. uh, we think that it comes indeed from, this, uh, from the vibration of the yeah. dump. From the fast movement, as you called it before. Yeah. We couldn't modify that for the dumps that we have installed, but we will have to understand the origin of these failures, again, for the high luminosity dump and also for uh, spare dumps that we are going to build this year and next one as well. Mm -hmm. So it's um, so, so we are going to try, or let's say our objective is to execute the autopsy of one of these uh, irradiated dumps uh, uh, in the next couple of months. Uh, so, okay, so, so because they are radioactive, it's not a totally trivial task. It's very far from being trivial. So uh, this is an interesting topic because this is true for all uh, teams that operates beam intercepting device. So executing autopsies of our components is extremely important because we basically, um, is on one side very important because it teaches us quite a lot of piece of information that uh, we could only guess from simulation. So looking at things uh, after they saw uh, the beam, it's, it's extremely important. Um, but at the same time, it's quite difficult. So it's not like doing on a non-radioactive object because they are radioactive. So we cannot do these autopsies yeah. in any lab. We have to um, appropriately equip ourselves uh, with uh, means and tools uh, and techniques that allows us to, let's say, cut open these components yeah. uh, in a safe way for us, basically yeah. for the people that has to intervene. Yeah. So we do that remotely. We use the robots uh, where applicable. So mm -hmm. we, we, we have a certain amount of tools uh, at our disposal to be able to do this. Interesting. So mm -hmm. for, the, for the high luminosity LHC then, um, the challenges are higher luminosity, haha. So there is more mm -hmm. energy being dumped for every dump yeah. event. Mm -hmm. So you would assume that these movements you talked about, the heat is higher. Yeah. Um, is the frequency of dumps different? Will the operational schema of LHC itself change? Or is the cavern size a limit? Will it have to be longer? Or what do you imagine? On one side, uh, um, yeah, I mean, let, let's start with what will change with, the, with, with HL. As you correctly said, so the energy will basically go from 6.8 to 7, so it's not a major yeah. mod, 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 modification. Yeah. The beam intensity will increase, yeah. so this will give rise to um, an instantaneous temperature rise, so the energy density essentially will be higher. Yeah. So this is the first challenge that we have to face, is the higher, higher temperature that we will reach in the graphite. Yeah. So for this, we are basically investigating the option of using other types of graphitic materials that, let's say, resist better to higher temperature and the resulting uh, thermal stress that are generated by this, this temperature. So this is one avenue of, uh, of R&D that we are uh, following up. The second point you correctly said is that um, high luminosity will likely operate in a slightly different mode in the sense that the number of dumps is expected to increase, mm -hmm. meaning that the duration of one physics field is going to probably going to be shorter. And this means for us that the average power will increase. Yeah. It will increase on one side because we will have more kinetic energy mm -hmm. dumped 
of every dump event, but also it will increase even further because the number of dumps per unit time will increase. So in other words, the time for the whole system to cool down will become shorter because there's the next exactly. dump event happening, yeah. heating it up again. So we have two colliding, let's say, requirements yeah, yeah. because on one side, yeah. we will yeah. have more energy to dissipate. So a priori, if we would maintain the system as of now, we would need more time yeah. to cool it down. But also we have yeah. the other requirements of having to dump more often. Yeah. So clearly one of the consequences for this is that we will certainly have to improve Uh, our cooling system yeah. because with the system that we have right now it will certainly not be possible mm -hmm. so th this is um, this is an extremely important point and the third point as as you correctly said is this movement effect but this movement effect if as we all hope uh, the modification there that yeah. we have done for run two uh, will help us mitigate this effect we will uh, let's say reuse the current uh, yeah. Uh, engineer the system yeah. for the high luminosity LHC bin dump, unless we change completely some of the logics that we are discussing right now. Um, oh, yeah. We also have some other ideas mm -hmm. that would uh, avoid using uh, stainless steel as a container for the graphite. Oh, yeah. But okay. it's some, um, uh, let's say, highly evolutionary options uh, that we will be um, exploring uh, yeah. probably in the next couple of years yeah one last question here do, do you have can you give us one indication how you might increase cooling what we want essentially is to increase the heat transfer uh, coefficient yeah. uh, from the fluid that is used to cool to the vessel of our target of our dump this is what we want to do oh, okay oh, right now you, you okay you, you didn't mention fluid so far so there is actually uh, fluid is a gas Oh, okay, I mean, okay, uh, okay, okay, okay. The, the, the air you mentioned before. Is the, the air, air cool. okay. Yeah, okay, okay. Now, yeah. now we are just using, a, I mean, just, a, it's a big word, but we are using a, a blower yeah, yeah. that essentially blows um, 5,000 cubic meter per hour of yeah. air from the bottom of the dump to the top. Yeah, okay. It seems like this quite a, a large amount, but it is not, yeah, yeah. okay? So the effective uh, heat transfer uh, coefficient that we we are able to reach under this scenario is relatively poor yeah. uh, for such a system. Yeah. So we do have some ideas to improve based on the technology that we have, uh, for example, to increase the the speed uh, of the of the air that flows around the dump. This yeah. will already help increase in the HTC, the heat transfer coefficient. We have other means of using other gas uh, going from air to, to again, Uh, gas like helium, which mm -hmm. will help in other means. So we do have some ideas on how okay. to improve that. Um, one option may be obvious would be to use water because clearly that would yeah. have the best HDC. But it's wet. It's wet. I mean, the problem <laughs> there is not the fact of using water, which on one side, of course, is it's amongst the best that you yeah. could try to use. The problem is that you have to imagine that this thing shakes It shakes a lot, mm -hmm. okay? So we don't want, at least in the current thinking of our system, we don't want to have uh, pipes which are ah. attached to the dump uh, that shakes so much, so yeah. badly, because the risk of uh, breaking uh, uh, whether a seal, whether it's a seal, whether it's a tube, whether it's a connection, whether it's a flexible or whatever that connects the cooling circuit to the dump, uh, We don't want to be in such a scenario. So we still prefer to remain with a gas, yes, yeah. whether it's air, whether it's uh, nitrogen, whether it's helium, um, because it's the one that uh, has less... Uh, It needs no connectors. 
it needs basically no connector. It, yeah. it, they will need, especially if you want to increase the speed. But okay. I, we think that we can do, we can devise, we can construct, we can uh, conceive a system which is highly reliable under those conditions. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, yeah. Let's talk a bit about the uh, dumps of the SPS and the PS, the super proton synchrotron and the proton synchrotron. Um, you mentioned them before. How are they different? Basically, all of them, I would say, are different. <laughs> so, as let's say, one of the big separation that we could do in the way we design dumps is considering them internal to the ultra high vacuum or external to the ultra high vacuum. Okay. Mm-hmm. In the case of the LHC, is the basic definition of external dump yeah. because it's, it's not a, even connected. <laughs> it's not even connected. So yeah. it's totally separated from the from the accelerator tunnel. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, it requires uh, a dedicated cavern, mm-hmm. a dedicated uh, transfer line. So so it's a it's a relatively complex system. Uh, it, it provides certain, I mean, much more flexibility in operating your system. Sometimes you cannot do without that. Uh, but in some other cases, the dumps are physically located inside the ultra-high vacuum of, mm-hmm. the, of the machine and uh, in between components. Okay, mm-hmm. This is the case of the um, SPS beam dump. Also, in that case, it's a, it's a complex component. It's very large as well. Eh? This is uh, The core itself is, is five meters long and uh, all included, including the, the vacuum chamber that are made, that are composed within... The dump itself makes a 10 meters long device. Mm-hmm. So this is also very large, but the dump itself is within the SPS uh, machine itself. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it's in between uh, uh, magnets, yeah. es- es- essentially. So yeah. also in that case, we do have a kicker system that um, uh, dilute the beam onto the front surface of the dump, because also in the case of the SPS, albeit the the energy, the kinetic energy is much less because yeah. we are talking about around five megajoule, yeah. um, still an enormous amount of energy, but tiny with respect to the one that goes into the LHC. Yeah, not 500. Uh, exactly, it's not 500 me- megajoule, but in the case of the SPS dump, uh, like for most of the other dumps that accelerator systems, not only at CERN but outside have, um, they tend to operate uh, relatively often okay within the what, what we call the super cycle you can have multiple dumps so you can have dumps within few seconds from each other okay why is that it's related to the way the sps works so sps is not uh, in the current uh, scenario i mean at least now it yeah. is not a collider it, yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. it is an accelerator that serves the lhc as a as an injector but it also serves other experimental facilities. So mm-hmm. it, it basically continuously accelerates and extracts mm-hmm. beam. It's like a pump. For several users. Yeah, okay. okay. Mm-hmm. So within uh, a window, let's say, of 30 seconds, there are several users which are served one after the other. Mm-hmm. Okay. And it could be that during normal operation, you never dump during this period because you inject from PS you accelerate in the SPS and you extract either towards LHC mm-hmm. or towards the fixed target of the North uh, area or uh, or other user or, or, or awake. I mean, yeah. every user have different needs of the beam, but it could be that, for example, during setup time, mm-hmm. when you want to prepare the beams before extracting uh, towards the experiment themselves, the operation team, they need to prepare the beam to make sure that they are as the experiments need mm-hmm. as the LHC need. 
So they are basically inject from the from the PS. They are set up. I mean, radio frequency set up, uh, vacuum and uh, beam instrumentation, everything. But before being sent to the experiment, you need a dump to absorb this beam before they are uh, at the next cycle ejected to the experiment. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. under these scenarios, the dumps need to be operational basically every few seconds mm-hmm. because every few seconds we have a different uh, mm-hmm. user, we call it, and, ah. uh, and therefore the dump needs to be able to absorb all this energy every time that is needed. Mm-hmm. So sometimes the dump could uh, basically never operate. Yeah. Uh, so it's, it's sitting there ready to absorb the beam. So the kicker are ready to fire and to send the beam to the dump. But at any given moment, as in the case of the LHC, the dump needs to be ready to absorb the beam. So it could work uh, at uh, zero power, let's say, so the beam is never dumped there, or it could be dumped, uh, you could dump a high intensity beam uh, Mm -hmm. every couple of seconds uh, Mm -hmm. or every 2.4 seconds onto the dump. So it really depends on the on the way operation needs to operate the, the machine. So it's quite flexible in this respect. And so that's why the peak power is lower, but the uh, uh, integrated continuous energy and therefore the heat production, the integrated heat production might be higher compared to the LHC. Yeah, I mean, the peak power, let's say the the, the instantaneous kinetic energy is lower because yeah. The, the beam itself, the circulating exactly. beam itself has a lower kinetic energy yeah. because we are not operating at 6.8 uh, yeah. tera electron volt, but we are operating at 450 yeah. giga electron volt. And basically you have uh, shorter uh, trains, let's say. Yeah. But you dump often, so at the end you can come up with an average dumped power of uh, several hundreds of kilowatt mm-hmm. in the case of the new SPS beam dump. Mm-hmm. And therefore, the technology there are on one side focused to be able to, let's say, on, on one side, need, they need to be robust enough. The material that we use need, needs to be robust enough to be able to um, resist the energy density that is deposited by the beam. So even mm-hmm. there, we use graphite. Mm-hmm. We use, in the specific case, we use uh, four meters of graphite followed by um, uh, molybdenum alloy and tungsten mm-hmm. uh, to reduce a bit the size, the longitudinal size of, of the dump. But at the same time, we need to be very careful in the capability of extracting the heat from the graphite. Yeah. So as we said b- before, in the case of the uh, LHC beam, beam dump, we have these long hours before we could effectively extract the heat. This, we cannot allow ourselves to be in such a situation for the other dumps where we have to extract the heat. So we must make sure that the heat is extracted rapidly and effectively from the graphite to the heat sink, Mm -hmm. okay? So in the specific case of the SPS, the graphite is surrounded by a copper alloy structure, let's say, that acts on one side as a supporting system for the absorbing core, but on the other side, it also acts as really the heat sink. Mm -hmm. So all the heat gets uh, absorbed from the graphite to the copper alloy and then from and owing to the very large and very good thermal conductivity of copper then we transfer this heat from this copper to uh, water that ah. flows inside basically this uh, this mm-hmm. copper alloy mm-hmm. and the reason why you can do that why you can have a i would say a direct contact between the graphite and the copper is because the 
the peak energy is lower, so you don't have that many movements, not so much expansion, not that much uh, high frequency uh, oscillations that you mentioned before. So the rigid holding of the graphite is feasible here. Exactly, exactly. So in, in the case of the SPS, despite we have this uh, five megajoule, it does not give rise to large, yeah. uh, let's say, dynamic excursions right, right, of, right. of our assembly. Okay, yeah. uh, but we also we are also monitoring it. So in the new in the in the case of the new SPS beam dump, uh, upstream and downstream of the dump, uh, we do have uh, position sensors mm-hmm. that allows us to monitor the position of the dump in the three direction upstream and downstream to be able to see whether the dump would move and what, what we observed this year is that it does not as according to our simulations mm-hmm. and uh, the difference with respect to the LHC beam dump is that uh, in this specific case the absorber itself so the dump itself is contained uh, inside a large uh, shielding uh, system because clearly the dump uh, uh, since it sees quite a lot of accumulated uh, Uh, protons per year, it gets quite radioactive over time, and therefore it needs to be shielded Mm -hmm. because being the dump uh, basically inside the the accelerator itself, you know, people that go around to maintain the different system in the accelerator should not see the radiation that comes from the dump itself. So in fact, the dump is inside uh, um, uh, a castle, let's say, uh, or a shielding uh, system uh, that uh, again protects people from uh, from exposure. Mm-hmm. So and we use uh, um, iron uh, with concrete and with marble as well mm-hmm. as outside the uh, uh, shielding uh, assembly. So it mm-hmm. works quite well. Okay, and for the LHC, it's not that much of a problem because it's kind of away from where people typically maintain the tunnel and the magnets and the beam and the experiments. So, the, the, yeah, the, the, I, I think it's this clearly because uh, yeah. in the dump cavern uh, only we go essentially. Yeah. <laughs> so only us, maybe sitting in the dump, uh, go there. Yeah. And uh, and second, it is because compared with the SPS beam dump or the PS dump mm-hmm. or the booster dump, the amount of dumped mm-hmm. protons is much less mm-hmm. than in the injector uh, chain itself. Mm-hmm. So this is also another reason why the shielding around the dump, the LHC beam dump is less critical compared with the other dumps. Yeah, yeah. As we slowly approach uh, um, the end of our conversation, um, what's the status of the FCC? Has it been decided that it will be built? I, I lost track a little bit. And if uh, so, how could a beam dump just, you know, roughly look for the much higher energies of an FCC? Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting question as well. So um, f- first on the on, on, on the status of the FCC, um, we are still in the, um, in the design phase. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we still not have decided whether to build it or not. Mm-hmm. So, and uh, I, I think look forward the the next European strategy to address this. Clearly what has changed with respect to a few years ago is that the focus has shifted towards the electron-positron ah. version of the FCC. Okay, would be an EE collider then. Yeah. Exactly, as the next yeah. step. Uh, still, it would require the very large uh, uh, tunnel. Yeah. But um, uh, wh- wh- while up to a few years ago, the FCC HH, so the Hadron-Hadron, yeah. the evolution of the LHC was looked in priority. Now, the priority has shifted towards the electron-positron machine, mm. where 
the needs for the dump are uh, we would still need uh, an, an external dump with a similar concept as the one that we have for the LHC with with some modifications. I'll not enter into the into the detail. Um, clearly, for the future future <laughs> hadron hadron version, uh, clearly there the challenging the challenges would be you know <laughs> probably an order of a couple of orders of magnitude uh, more complex than the one yeah. uh, we are facing now. Yeah with the LHC and with high luminosity at LHC. People have already worked a bit on, on that and established a, a conceptual design of the, mm-hmm. of the dumping system of FCC. But clearly there are, there are a lot of challenges that need to be looked at because then uh, one of the things is, for example, the diameter of the dump will have to be much larger than what we have right now, which of course in itself in engineering term is a challenge. Mm-hmm. It's already difficult now and most likely will also have to be slightly longer. Mm-hmm. So maybe we would look at a dump, which is not anymore a, a single volume, mm-hmm. but maybe it's multiple cores one after the other, which could be exchanged. So there are there are lots of uh, discussions there. But again, as I said before, since uh, now the focus has shifted towards the EE version, yeah. so the electron-positron version, I think uh, it is a bit the situation yeah. <laughs> with respect to that. So yeah. There are, of course, for the EE version, there are other challenges elsewhere. Yeah. Yeah. Will be intercepting devices, but um, uh, probably it will be not as challenging uh, as the, the HH yeah. version. Clearly, yeah. because clearly. the energies uh, are the total energy is lower because the particles are lighter. I guess that's one way of. Well, of I, I I think it's multiple effects. It's, it's also because the the energy of the beam will not be anymore hundreds yeah, yeah. of tera electron volt. Yeah. Talking about uh, yeah. several hundreds of giga electron volt. So yeah. it's a it's a different. It's clearly a very different, different scenarios. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and 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 also the dump is used in a slightly different way as with respect to the to a hadron collider because in an electron positron collider you have a lot of synchrotron radiation. So the energy of the beam that is dumped, uh, it's also less than the one at peak energy. But okay, right. this is uh, an, a separate subject. Yeah, I yeah, think. Yeah. So last so. question here. Uh, you're a physicist, right? Originally, as you explained in the beginning. Yeah, I am. Now you're anywhere between an engineer and a project manager and a tourist guy from time to time. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm a hybrid. Hybrid, hybrid yeah. So how... Is this like? Can you do you still do research? Are you looking? Are you sad that you're that you're no longer doing research? Or is this a little bit the inevitable, uh, if you will, course of a career at a at a facility like CERN that as you become more senior, you move from experimentation more to to engineering? Or was it a conscious choice? I. It's a combination of events. I'm not, uh, I mean, I was not, uh, I mean, apart from my PhD, when I was doing my PhD, I never did in itself research. I mean, okay. when I come, when I, when, I, when I came to CERN, uh, especially, I mean, knowing that I was not working as a research physicist, I was working for, as an applied physicist here mm-hmm. at CERN. Mm-hmm. So, so this was, uh, I already took into account, but uh, it's also, it's it's also true that um, um, building components uh, for uh, mm-hmm. for CERN uh, for the accelerator complex in itself it's, phys- it's, it's not a standard uh, engineering yeah, yeah. work yeah. because to build such a com- such a challenging components yeah. it's a sort of R and D yeah. that you do every day yeah. so in order to cope the functional specification that we need to um, that we need to comply with. 
to allow the accelerator complex to work. Uh, we are regularly uh, at the top, let's say, of the technology that mm -hmm. we are using. Mm -hmm. And uh, in order to, to reach our goals, we always have to do R&D research in itself. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. Um, for the topics I, we just discussed today, whether it's for the LHC beam dump, whether it's for the SPS beam dump, whether it's for spallation targets, uh, whether it's for collimators, we are always searching for either new materials or new production techniques or uh, new ways of building components in a more efficient way, be compliant with the uh, ALARA consideration for radiation protection purposes. Mm -hmm. So um, I think... I think I'm not missing research mm -hmm. itself if it's uh, yeah. if it's what you uh, yeah. you were asking because what we do in my team is effectively R&D. Yeah. So yeah. of course our priority is to make things work. So yeah. this is our mandate. Yeah. Things needs to work, but we also work for projects. So we develop new components which must be reliable and um, and I think as part of the game here, and I, I would really like to mention this point, is that um, we are, uh, I mean, all this can be done only through people. So we we do have a very committed uh, team here of people which are more stable at CERN, but we also have a large amount of young uh, mm. uh, physicists, uh, uh, engineers, and technicians, which are working here in the team, which are coming from different member states of CERN with different expertise and different uh, background, and uh, and their energy and their wish to work in this uh, in this environment really makes the difference yeah. from uh, for what we have to do. Yeah. So so and, and and the way you guys work, also like together with other teams on. Uh, at other other accelerators worldwide it, it's a similar community there's a lot of exchange or conferences there is yeah. joint effort to improve the state of the art which is quite different from perhaps classical engineering where there's also always competition and you know yeah. money is usually a concern i'm sure there's uh, some concern in your case as well but sure. not that much right i mean it's a different scenario yeah i, I think I, I think i see the collaboration with uh, with other labs i mentioned few at the very beginning yeah, yeah. but uh, the collaboration are larger than, than those these are extremely enriching extremely yeah. useful um, because you do not do not only learn new things or way ways in which other teams are doing their job but you also um, I think within the community we are relatively at least for beam intercepting device but uh, it is true also in other cases you do not only speak about things that go well yeah. but you all also speak about things that do not go well yeah. so things that break uh, why these things break and the lesson learned that you have by learning why they did wrong okay yeah. so all this and being very open on this with publications or proceedings or presentation or whatever it's uh, and discussions of course these are the most important ones yeah. um, are for us extremely extremely important so it's yeah. true that we have a, a large base of of young people here uh, but also uh, being open and collaborative uh, with other labs around the world is uh, i think uh, an extremely an extremely important uh, yeah. uh, point unfortunately this uh, got a bit uh, Uh, by force of things, eh, got a bit reduced in the last uh, couple of years. Yeah. I hope that uh, from this year onwards, we could come back to, uh, yeah. um, let's say, pre, 
as a, a pre-2020 situation. Yeah. <laughs> Let's yeah. put it like this. Otherwise, you have to invent the tabletop uh, accelerators. You can do stuff in the, at home in the home office, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, but uh, yeah. I think exchanging ideas, uh, it's always uh, for all uh, domains. Uh, it, it's something which I think it's also part of our nature. Yeah. So, yeah. so yeah. it's something that uh, makes us evolve. Uh, yeah. <laughs> in a better direction i hope yeah well yeah and last word from my side i i'm an engineer myself or well before i did full-time computer stuff i was an engineer um no longer really one but i'm almost more fascinated by the engineering that goes into these large-scale science experiments than in the science itself i mean it's nice if they measure you know the mass of the higgs or whatever muon g minus two stuff but the the challenge of building these machines is something that, in my opinion, isn't talked about enough. And also the contribution of engineers or yeah. scientists who have become engineers in that context, also in the, in the public discourse, isn't, isn't mentioned enough. And so that's also one of the reasons why I love to talk about these topics on the podcast and not just yeah. about the science there. It's also, um, also just to say that, uh, I mean, touching on the point that, that you said here, that uh, I mean, I don't regret uh, <laughs> this change in uh, in, yeah. uh, in my in my professional activity. I think uh, I think it was quite uh, quite good, and uh, yeah. it opened uh, quite new uh, avenues. So yeah. All right, Marco. Thank you. Thanks to you very much for doing this. No it's a pleasure. This was very interesting, and of course, once again, thank you very much for the very extensive tour that you gave uh, us when we were there in September. This was quite. Good. It's a pleasure. Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks, everybody. All right. That's it. Thank you very much, Marco, for uh, taking the time to be a guest. And of course, once again, for the great tour <laughs> back in September. Very cool. Everybody else, I hope you enjoyed the episode. Please let us know. You can still vote on the episode, even with the new plugin. You can also still uh, say your opinion on iTunes, especially if it's a positive opinion. But even if it's a critical opinion, just go there, comment, rate. This always helps. This gets us more visibility in iTunes, and um, that's always good. Okay, so um, the frequency of episodes will still be a little bit reduced Um because of uh, just work and other stuff uh, going on. and uh, But uh, we're happily recording episodes, just not quite at the frequency that we have done in the past. But uh, stay tuned for new content. See you then. Ciao. Hallo, Markus hier. Omega Tau ist ein unabhängiger und nicht kommerzieller Podcast, produziert von Nora Ludewig und Markus Völker. Ihr findet uns im Netz unter omegatau.info. Von dort sind dann die Episoden, das Buch und die Fotos verlinkt. Omega Tau wird finanziert von Spenden unserer Hörer. Wir würden uns freuen, wenn du auch zugehören würdest. Auf Facebook, Twitter und Instagram sind wir unter Omega Tau Podcast zu finden. Wir freuen uns über euer Feedback, entweder als Kommentar auf der Episodenseite, per E-Mail an feedback at oder über die sozialen Medien. Omega Tau ist lizenziert unter der Creative Commons Namensnennung nicht kommerziell 4.0 International Lizenz. Ihr dürft die Episoden also weiterleiten, aber nicht kommerziell nutzen. Zitate sind natürlich in Ordnung, gebt dann aber bitte als Quelle Omega Tau Podcast an. Details zur Lizenz finden Sie unter creativecommons.org. In diesem Sinne, bis bald.